Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17 of The Nature of Middle-Earth as we continue to work through the end of part two, though I fear that uh, between the Osanwe Kenta, which we've done, and the uh, long deliberation on Elvish reincarnation, well, inspired by the subject of Elvish reincarnation, perhaps I should say, we've got, you know, uh, the the latter part of part two is a little more weighty than it looks in page length, <laughs> so we'll see. We may end up uh, tarrying here at the end of part two a little bit longer than I expected, possibly. Um, the uh, the the that chapter on Elvis reincarnation really, whew, um, it is fun in so many ways. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. I hope we'll get to it. There's still a bunch of things from before that that we didn't quite get to yet, but uh, we will see how we do. Before we get started, though, I wanted to make a quick announcement. It is... What is it? It's February. It's February, and just this past week, just on Monday of this week, uh, we posted our new set of confirmed modules for space, uh, our space program, and I just wanted to share that with you this evening in particular. Um, so you can go to uh, signumuniversity.org space, and you can find our uh, lists of imminent modules, our confirmed modules, and our upcoming uh, candidate modules for April, which are down here below the candidate modules, but, and there's lots of really fun ones there, uh, I wanted to draw your particular attention to a couple of the confirmed modules for March. Uh, there's a bunch of fun things going on, um, but two I wanted to particularly bring to your attention uh, is first we have a new Tolkien module being taught uh, this month by Sarah Brown called Tolkien and Alchemy, looking at the ways in which alchemy uh, can be seen as uh, uh, sort of a metaphor at play in The Lord of the Rings. Really fascinating stuff uh, with Sarah Brown. So fun Tolkien discussion there. And then um, uh, hieroglyphics. Uh, this is a, our, our work. We have a new language module that's running. We've been running a cohort of Latin students who are very enthusiastically learning Latin. We have a cohort of students who are learning Old English, which is really cool. And we have a new cohort of students who are starting off ready to learn Egyptian hieroglyphics, how to interpret Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, really, really fun Really, really fun thing. So, um, uh, again, all of our space uh, modules, this is not asynchronous stuff. These are not just like recordings or something like that. All of these are uh, scheduled sessions. You'll be getting together with a small group of like-minded students uh, and, uh, you know, a dedicated professor working through uh, this stuff together in a casual, low-impact uh, but really fruitful learning environment. Our space students have been delighted by the space experience so far, and we've been so happy to see it. So, Egyptian hieroglyphics, I would, I, that's, that's uh, one of the ones I am most excited about uh, that we are starting off. We've been, uh, been offering that for a while, and we've had some interest, which just like never lined up in, in the same month before. So we finally got everything together so that we could start a hieroglyphics cohort here uh, this coming month, which is pretty fun. Um, so um, anyway, yes, lots of yes. And there's uh, some really cool uh, stuff coming up. Bjarne Sonner is pointing to the uh, the history of anime uh, module that's happening in uh, uh, in uh, April here. Um, yeah, lots of really uh, lots of really cool stuff. Um, 
So I'll talk more about the candidate modules uh, probably next week, but um, really, uh, really fun thing. Um, anyway, so wanted to recommend that to you. Uh, please do go check out the space schedule and see what is on tap here. Uh, you can look at all the rest of the things on tap for March and what's coming up for April. Uh, definitely wanted to invite you there. All right, let us get back into things here. So where were we? We were at the end of the Asanwe Kenta last time, um, and um, we caught up to like the dramatic conclusion, which was awesome. Uh, now, picking up here um, in chapter 12, um, there was, however, one element in the design of Eru that remained a mystery, the children of Eru, elves and men, the incarnate. These were said to have been an addition made by Eru himself after the revelation to the primal spirits of the great design. They were not subject to the sub-creative activities of the Valar, and one of the purposes of this addition was to provide the Valar with objects of love, as being in no way their own subject, but having a direct relationship to Eru himself, like their own, but different from it. They were, or were to be, thus other than the Valar, independent creations of his love, and so objects for their reverence and true, entirely unself-regarding, love. Another purpose they had, which remained a mystery to the Valar, was to complete the design by healing the hurts which it suffered, and so ultimately not to recover Arda unmarred, that is, the world as it would have been if evil had never appeared, but the far greater thing, Arda healed. Okay, um, so much fun stuff here. Um, this is the reason for the children. So first, we are told that the children of Eru are a late addition to the plan, right? He says they were said to have been an addition made by Eru himself after the revelation to the primal spirits of the great design. So after the vision that they receive, right? So there's the music, and then there's the vision. Um, after the vision, and the vision is taken away, that's when the children of Eru get added to the mix, right? Now, Arthur asks the very sensible question, no no discord, no children, right? If Melkor doesn't rebel, do the children of Eru ever come in? Um, I don't know, Arthur, that we can necessarily conclude that. Um, there are a couple of things here. Um, note that there are a couple... All right. As I say, there are a couple things. First, he specifies they're an addition made after the revelation. Second, he specifies they're not subject to the subcreative activities of the Valar. Right? That is, they're not. This is they're, they are not part of what the Valar are in charge of. Not directly. They're not part of the subcreative activities, like you know the elements and mountain ranges and things like that. Right. Um, these things, the uh, the material of which Middle Earth is made, are you know kind of created for like to be raw materials for the subcreative activities of the Valar, not the children, right? Not the children. Um, their relationship is supposed to be of a particular kind, but notice how this adds up 
not to just be a description of the nature of the children of Iluvatar, but one of the purposes of it, of the children, right? There are two purposes that he cites. The second, the second one, Arthur, is the one that he, um, where he's talking about healing the hurts of Arda, right? And that one certainly does seem explicitly oriented towards a post-Melkorin situation, right? Um, if the discord of Melkor hadn't happened, then there certainly would be no need for the healing of the hurts of Arda. But I am not convinced that that means that there would have been no children necessarily, had there been no hurts to heal, right? Because there are hurts to heal, this is now one of their purposes. But I think they might have had other purposes as well. Um, I think that the other purpose that we can see that first one, the, first, the one he describes first, seems to me to be the primary one. And I really loved this idea because I'd never... I, on the one hand, he's saying something which is very similar to something that's said in the Ainulindale. That is, in the Ainulindale, we get a description of the response of the Valar to the children, right? They love the children. They love the idea of the children, right? Because they are things which are like themselves, but other than themselves. And so, and in them, they can see the mind of Iluvatar reflected in new ways. Remember, there's, there's that stuff that's said about what the Valar think and feel about and towards the children of Iluvatar, right? That, that, that's there. And he's almost saying something like that again. It's almost saying the same thing again. Those elements are there, and yet there's, there's more, right? Uh... And the way that he characterizes the more seems to me very important, especially in the context of what he's talking about, free will and, uh, you know, all of this important stuff. Look carefully again at how he describes this. One of the purposes of this, that is, of them not being subject to the subcreative activities, was to provide the Valar with objects of love as being in no way their own subject. So the, the, they're not raw materials for them. Right? They do not rule over them in the same way that, again, they rule over the winds and the seas and the land and uh, the plants and the beasts and things like that. Right? Um, they are not their own subject, but having a direct relationship to Eru himself. Um, so they have to um, kind of approach them diplomatically from the outside. Right? <clears throat> so by creating the children, Eru has created the situation. He has put free agents into the picture. And the thing that Tolkien emphasizes in this paragraph is now the question is, what will the Valar do? What will they do, right? They were or were to be, thus other than the Valar, independent creations of his love, and so objects for their reverence and true, entirely unself-regarding love. They are there to be objects of love. But there's something here which is going to be relevant to what he's talking about later, and I don't know that I would have thought of this in the same way if he hadn't gone on to discuss this afterwards. But notice there's an implicit... Um, there's an implicit alternative here. The purpose. What the... 
plan A, right? What Eru's intention for the relationship with the children is that they should be objects of true, entirely unself-regarding love, right? That's the plan. But their existence creates the potential for other choices, right? Not only are the children of Iluvatar themselves free agents, right? But they also create choice, right? Um, I'm going to make a dangerous parallel. Dangerous only because it's not explicitly referred to in the text here, so this is an extrapolation on my part. If you think this is off-base or, or uh, you don't think it works, then you're welcome to reject it. But what I couldn't help but think of when I was uh, reading this paragraph was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing, right? And it doesn't cause Adam and Eve to sin. But Adam and Eve don't sin if it's not there, right? Um, what it is, is it presents a choice. Like, you, they have to choose. When either they're going to obey or they're not going to obey, right? Um, they don't, uh, they can't just kind of carry on by accident. You know what I mean? Um, the, the children of Eru seem to create a similar situation for the Valar. Okay, there are these children. They are other from themselves. What are they going to do? Are they going to react to them, to treat them, to be towards them as Eru intended? Are they going to make them objects of entirely unself-regarding love? Or not? Right? Or not? Um, we know what is the the most a sort of classic, right? Essential um, evil activity or manifestation of evil in Tolkien's world, right? Like the classic paradigm of evil is the desire to dominate the wills of others, right? I mean, that's and we were just looking at that with you know uh, uh, with in the Asan Kenta with Melkor uh, and his desire to overcome the unwill of creatures, right? He wants to dominate their wills. We know that the desire to dominate the wills of others is at the absolute heart of the whole Ring of Power Gambit, right? By Sauron, um, this is like the things that evil creatures. It's like the classic thing that evil creatures do: desire to dominate, control others, to, to see something that is other from yourself and to say, I want to control that. I want to make that, sub I want that to worship me, right? I want to be master of that thing and for it to obey and to serve my ends or not. Or are you going to show entirely unself-regarding love, right? Which is the exact opposite of that desire to dominate, where you are regarding self so fully that you disregard utterly the rights, significance, integrity, right? you know, everything about the, you know, the otherness, essentially. Um, they're other. They're, they're creatures of their own, right? Worthy in their own way. Notice that what they're, what they're supposed to be objects of is not only true love, but reverence, objects of reverence. That doesn't mean the Valor are supposed to worship them, right? But what they are supposed to revere 
is that direct relationship with Eru himself. They are from Eru. They reflect the mind of Eru just as other, other uh, of the Ainur do, right? Not in the same way, in a different way, right? And therefore, something new that they can learn from. Um, that's what they're... For. But again, the opposite of that uh, is what Melkor is going to do. But there are other mistakes that you can make, right? It's not Melkor or nothing when it comes to this. In this way, they're a little more complicated. Uh, but do you see what I mean about the parallel to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Again, it's not exactly the same, obviously, in lots of ways, but um, in the sense that just as in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, we see this, um, what was that uh, phrase? Bjarnason, or exactly, the opportunity to sin, right? The opportunity to sin is there, right? There is a, there is a breakable commandment, and a uh, uh, convenient opportunity to sin should they choose to sin, right? Don't have to, but there it is, right? And in a sense, the children of Eru provide, in my mind, anyway, again, the text is not making this parallel. I am, I am, I am, this is my own analogy here. Um, but it seems to me, based on the what we know about Melkor, what we've just been reading from the Asanwe Kenta, and what we're going to go on to read after this, that this seems to be, as far as the Valar are concerned, one of the important elements of the children of Eru. They're like, they are themselves like a testing ground. You know, how are you going to treat the children of Eru? Is itself a litmus test, right, for Ainur, for the Valar. Um, if when you see them, you say, this is a being other than myself from which, you know, in whom I can see the mind of Iluvatar reflected in new ways. Um, you know, come let me like love and serve them and revere the image of Iluvatar in them and, you know, treat them with respect and honor as, you know, younger siblings. Like if that's your reaction, that's good. Right. Um, if your reaction is these independent agents going about doing their own thing with no respect to me, right? I must control them. They must serve me and recognize me as their master. That's bad. But there's middle, there are middle grounds as well between those two things, right? Um, uh, it's not just... Um, uh, it's not simple. And I think that that's, this creates a really interesting situation. Now, then we get back to the other purpose, right? Um, which remained a mystery to the Valar. They don't understand how this is going to work. Um, notice apparently somebody knows about this, right? Like the, it's, there's been a leak, right? Um, that uh, their purpose is to complete the design capital D, design, by healing the hurts which the design had suffered, which it suffered. And so ultimately not to recover Arda unmarred, but the far greater thing, Arda healed. Arda is going to be healed through the children of Iluvatar. The Valar have no idea how. They don't know how this is going to work. But notice that this is another way in which reverence kind of comes into play, right? 
not only are they separate from themselves, not only are they peers in the sense that they too reflect the mind of Iluvatar and are his creations, right? Um, and so there's a sense in which, of course, they're they're very different in 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 you know in power and in authority, but there's a sense in which the Valar and the children are on the same level, right, in their relationship with with Eru. Um, but it's not just that, right? There is a purpose. For them, they have a role to play, which the Valar cannot do. The Valar cannot heal Arda. They're trying and failing, right? It's not gonna. And if it were just left to them, it wouldn't happen. Arda will be healed, but it will be healed through the children. And the Valar don't know how that's going to be. And so therefore, again, this is another reason why they should approach them not just with love, but again, I come back to that reverence remark, but with humility, right? They should not look at them and say, I need to get respect from them, right? I, they need to, to, to recognize me as master, uh, like Melkor would say, but I need to respect them. They, they're, they're doing a thing. I don't get it. I don't know how Iluvatar is going to work through them, but it's going to happen, right? Um, and that's really um, that's really interesting. And yes, Christopher, I think we can see something of a glimpse of this, perhaps, in the Eye of the that reference to the children participating in the second music. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. So anyway, this this what I loved about this paragraph is the way that this this felt to me like it on the one hand it raised as I say very familiar ideas, right, about the children of Iluvatar and about the Valar, but it put it into a a, a quite new context for me. Um let's keep going. Oh, small note following up on something I was talking about last time, that is, or maybe the time before, um, about the frame of the Aino Lindelay. Um The wills and desires and the resultant deeds of the elves remained forever in some measure unpredictable, and their minds not always open to admonition and instruction that was not, as was forbidden, issued as commands supported by latent power. This was even more evident in the case of men, either by their nature or by their early subjection to the lies of Melkor, or both. Um, again, I, my subtitle here for this slide is Evidence of Bias in the Aino Lindelay, right? Um, again, I go back to that passage in the Aino Lindelay, the reference to how, you know, humans have a different, uh, are given strange gifts, Right. And the gifts that they're this is the this is the famous passage. The passage I'm referring to in the Aino Lindelay is the famous passage that has been used for many years by many people as, you know, evidence supporting this, the unexpected but undeniable claim that elves do not have free will because they make a big deal about the freedom of men. And truly, there is a there is a distinction here, as is made even here in this passage, as we'll come back to in a second. But once again, when you take the Ainulindale and you put it back into the mouth of an elvish speaker, 
instead of just floating around with a res- with a resonant, you know, uh, uh, with a narrator's voice with a lot of reverb, uh, you know, sounding like the narrator of Genesis one or something like that. Um, then when again, you put it into the mouth of the Elvish speaker, it becomes clear that in that, the reason he's not talking about the free choice of the elves and how elves can screw things up is that he's an elf, right? And he's talking about the bits that, the part that he doesn't like, he's marveling about this whole human thing because like humans are weird, man, right? But he's like, elves, pff, like we're normal, right? It's all fine. Like what elves do is, 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 is fine. But you know, humans, strange, right? They were given strange gifts and they're just flat weird, right? Um, whereas when we have a more objective treatment of that subject here, we get almost exactly the same thing said about elves, right? Um, that the wills and desires and the resultant deeds of the elves remain forever in some measure unpredictable and their minds not always open to admonition and instruction. The, the speaker of the Ainuindale doesn't emphasize that bit, right? But we get it here. Um, and I think that's, again, it just, it makes such, such a profound difference in the, in the reading of the Aino Lindale to hear it as an elf speaking from his elvish perspective, right? And again, when it's not, we see the elvish free will, very explicitly discussed here, um, are, are unpredictable, unpredictable to the Valar, Right. And their minds are not always open to admonition and instruction. They don't always, you, you can try to, te- you can tell them, you can tell them, but they won't always listen. Right. You can teach them, but they won't always learn. Right. Um, and notice the door that's left open here. Right. Not open to admonition and instruction that was not issued as commands supported by latent power. Sometimes, you know, they're just not open to instruction, you know, unless, um, unless you lean on them, right? I mean, if you're a Valar and you're looking at these children, they just don't listen. And you can see, you can see, because, you know, you've been around the block a while. Heck, you made the block, right? And so, and you know the, you know, at least parts of the mind of Luvatar pretty well. So you're looking at these elves and you're like, man you are headed in the wrong direction, right? Look, I got to do something. Look at that person screwing up his life and the life of the people around him, right? And I've tried to tell him. I tried to tell him, and he's not listening, right? So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Valar? Um, Are you going to issue commands supported by latent power? Are you going to try to compel them to listen to wisdom and do the right thing? try to teach them, right? They keep giving them books and they keep chewing on the pages. What are you supposed to do, right? So, um, there's a temptation, right? There's your Valar version. Again, this is, again, it's not a binary situation like the, like the Genesis tree, right? It's not like you either eat the fruit or you don't eat the fruit. You don't have to go the full Melkor to still go into the danger zone, right? Um, it's forbidden, to issue commands supported by latent power. You can't do it. You can't do it, even though it's obvious to you that if they did something different, it would be better. Right? They're obviously wrong. And yet, you can't force them. Even for their own good, or what you really believe um, uh, is their own good. Right? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Chris exactly. Chris says, uh, see Turgan's refusal to evacu- evacuate Gondolin at the advice of Olmo. Yeah, Olmo stays on the right side of the line, right? He admonishes. <laughs> he instructs. Notice, he not only did that, he forewarned, right? He told them in advance that the day would come. Right? And then later on, he, pre- he prepared them for the admonition in advance, then delivers the admonition in an unmistakable way, right? With the whole, uh, you know, suit of armor and everything else, right? So that, like, there's there can be no doubt this is totally admonition and instruction directly from Olmo himself, right? Just like he told you he was going to do. And yet, yeah, there he goes, right? Decides he wants to stay. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Michael says, I just had a disturbing image of Manway saying, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. Exactly. You can't do it. You can't do it, right? Um, and not if you're Manway. At least Manway's not going to do it, right? We know he doesn't, he doesn't do it. Um, but, that, but it's not that he doesn't have the choice. And it's not that he doesn't have the temptation to do it, right? But now, then we get to men. This was even more evident in the case of men. Notice he doesn't say it's more the case. He doesn't say they're freer than elves. He says it's more evident in the case of men, either by their nature or by their early subjection to the lies of Melkor or by both. Maybe humans... And so like, what is even more evident? Um, the unpredictability and the minds not always open to admonition and instruction. I assume that's what he's referring back to, right? Those things. Um, again, it's not that humans are freer. It's that either by their nature or their early subjection to the lies of Melkor, it's more evident. It happens more often. It's more evident. The humans do screw up more often. Like, that's, 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 you can't deny it, right? When you look at the records. It's not that elves can't, and it's not even that they don't. But, you know, your average elf screws up less often than your average human. I mean, that's just kind of what we see. Right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but we can you see that you see the temptation again, looking at this from the Valar, the, the, the Valoran point of view, you can see the temptation. Right. You can see how easy it would be to take the first step. You don't have to be the Dark Lord of all from day one. Right. You don't have to be uh, Melkor from the start. And then, of course, we see they do, in fact, make mistakes, right? Um, here is the clearest statement of the wrongdoing of the Valar in the invitation of the elves to Valinor that I ever remember reading that Tolkien ever wrote. There are other places where he points to it, other places where he says that those who say it speak with the tongues of Melkor, right? So he kind of went back and forth on this, or there were, there were, there's a diversity of opinions on this subject. Um, but this is the clearest and strongest statement of this that I ever remember reading. This is said because the invitation given to the Eldar to remove to Valinor and live unendangered by Melkor was not, in fact, according to the design of Eru. It arose from anxiety, and it might be said from failure in trust of Eru, from anxiety and fear of Melkor, and the decision of the Eldar to accept the invitation was due to the overwhelming effect of their contact, while still in their inexperienced youth, with the bliss of Amon and the beauty and majesty of the Valar. It had disastrous consequences, disastrous 
consequences. It had disastrous consequences in diminishing the elves of Middle-earth and so depriving men of a large measure of the intended help and teaching of their elder brethren and exposing them more dangerously to the power and deceits of Melkor. Also, since it was in fact alien to the nature of elves to live under protection in Amman, and not as was intended in Middle-earth, one consequence was the revolt of the Noldor. They have, they, they have nobody but themselves to blame. The Valar, I mean, for the revolt of the Noldor. And again, this, is, uh, this goes back to, you think of Fanor's speech, right? The speech by Torchlight that he makes um, when he incites the rebellion and uh, uh, leads the exodus, right? Um, those things that he says against the Valar, which uh, are said in, you know, hatred of Morgoth and yet with, uh, you know, in, in them, you know, the lives of, Mor- of lives of Morgoth are at the root of many of them, remember all that stuff. Um, he's not wrong. Like, he's not completely wrong. You know, his statements about the Valar are not simply unjustified. Um, and they couldn't have been made if the Valar hadn't made this mistake um, in the first place. Um, what, what is the mistake? Wherein lies the mistake? Or perhaps to say this another way, how can we see the mistake? Like, what is the evidence that this is a mistake? Well, first we see the cause of it. Why did they invite them? Love, right? They wanted to protect them. That's good. They were supposed to love them. That's what winning looks like, remember? Right? Um, but notice uh, there's something missing here. They got the love part. What do they miss? The reverence. The objects of reverence. They had a purpose, the elves did, which they, the Valar, should have respected. They should have respected the elves more. They should have revered the elves and their purpose, and they should have revered Eru himself more. Their anxiety, oh no, Melkor might do bad things to the elves. Oh no, if we go to war with Melkor, maybe the elves are going to be destroyed Really? Spell this out, Valar. Are you really saying that your concern is that you're going to end up thwarting the entire design of Eru? Like, oh, Eru made these children, but, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, if we go to war, bad stuff might happen, and so, like, maybe they'll all die. And Eru's purpose will be entirely thwarted. Really? Really? That's your worry? You think think that's going to happen? That, I believe, is what... Tolkien means here when he says failure in trust of Eru. They they shouldn't have had anxiety and fear of Melkor. They should have had more trust in Eru that maybe he realized that Eru, Eru that is, right? Maybe Eru was actually aware of the fact that he was putting them on the same continent that Melkor was, right? Maybe, maybe that wouldn't have been a news bulletin to him. Maybe that was part of the plan, right? 
um, maybe indeed it was part of what was designed to help them achieve their purpose, right? And instead the Valar's say, no, we know better, right? Better safe than sorry. Let's bring them over here to uh, protect them, right? Thus, going the straight way towards thwarting the purpose of the children that was intended by Eru in the first place. They weren't meant to live under protection in Amman. That's not, that was not the plan. They were not supposed to be sheltered. They had a job and they couldn't do it. And you notice there are two things that come from to what are the disastrous consequences of inviting the elves to Valinor? What are the two disastrous consequences? The revolt of the Noldor is one. Their fault. They created that situation. Again, why? Because it's the desire to be back in Middle-earth. That There is a sense in which the Noldor are right. It's not, I mean, like, how you do it matters, right? I'm not saying Fanor is justified. But it's also not a coincidence that they have this desire to go back to Middle-earth, right? Um, uh, the attitude, there are issues, right? It's, but this whole situation comes about because the Valar have deprived them of what, in fact, they were designed to do, right? Um But notice the other thing. This is a huge deal. Remember, we were just saying that elves and men are very similar, right? In how they remain unpredictable and their minds are not always open to admonition and instruction, right? They sometimes do, you know, make questionable choices, right? Even if you tell them otherwise. And that it was more evident in the case of men. Why? Why is the average human more likely to make bad choices than the average elf? Um, in part because of their early subjection to the lies of Melkor. And why is that? Diminishing the elves of, the elves of Middle-earth were diminished. There are fewer of them. They took away the huge portion of the elves. Out of Middle-earth was supposed to be full of elves who would have been there to help the men when they were when they, when they were born, right? And so depriving men of a large measure of the intended help and teaching of their elder brethren and exposing them more dangerously to the power and deceits of Melkor. Eru had a plan. The Valar screwed it up. Screwed it up. And the fall of man is partially their fault. It's what happens, right? When you mess with the plan. Right? When you think you can improve on the plan. In their case, as I would say, based on the vocabulary of the earlier passage, showing love but not, uh, but not reverence. Right? And then notice the red flag that occurs in the middle of this. Right? They should have known better. They knew the rules. Remember the rules? It is forbidden to issue commands supported by latent power. Right? You can't... They can't use force. They can't use force. I mean, they have the power to force them. 
I mean, they're stronger than they are, right? That, that is, the Valar are stronger than the children. They could compel them. Not overcome their unwill, which is inviolable. That's not what I mean. But I mean, they can, like, they can force them to, like, stop doing stuff or make them do stuff, right? But that's forbidden to do. And yet, in a sense, that's what they do. Why do the elves go to Valinor? Most of them. Why do they go? Due to the overwhelming effect of their contact while still in their inexperienced youth with the bliss of Amon and the beauty and majesty of the Valar. The ambassadors? Bad idea. Horrible idea. Orome showing up, revealing the beauty and majesty of the Valar, right? Bringing some of them over. Of course they went back saying, oh man, Amon, we must. No, they weren't supposed to. They weren't, what were they supposed to do? How, and, and, and again, they're invited. It's not even just like the road was laid open to them. They were invited and they were invited forcibly enough that for elves to disobey, to refuse that invitation, is not great. Right? Remember, it, it, we were looking at ways in which the choice of the Avari is not a virtuous choice. It was almost like an act of rebellion. But that situation was only created by the Valar screwing up in the first place. Yeah, once the Valar made the invitation, then the refusal to go over is generally done for poor reasons. I mean, like you're putting the, they were putting the elves in an invidious position. If the elves submit, which they could scarcely help but do because they were overwhelmed, right? Um, if they submit, as again, they were almost compelled to do, then they are failing of their purpose, right? That's bad. And bad for them. Not bad of them, but bad for them, right? But if they refuse, well, that's bad of them. And that would seem to harden their heart, even potentially towards Iluvatar himself. Like, that puts them in a state of rebellion now. That's the choice that the Valar forced on them by making the invitation, and making the invitation in the way that they did. It's nothing like as bad as what Morgoth does to them. But... It's on the spectrum, right? It's on the spectrum. It's a pretty serious thing that he goes on that he goes on to say. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, as I say, this is really strong. And thinking about this, all of this stuff in context um, was really. Um, um, mind-blowing to me. Now, next chapter. Uh, thinking about spirits. There's lots of talk about spirits and what, you know, different kinds of spirits and things. Um, here's one thing that I found very interesting that I wanted to make sure we talked about. About the breath of Manwe. But the Eldar held that spirits the more as they had more native inherent power, could emit their influence to make contact with or act upon things exterior to themselves, primarily upon other spirits or other incarnate persons via their fear, 
but also in the case of great spirits, such as the Valar or great Maiar, directly upon physical things, without the mediacy of bodies normally necessary in the case of Ferondi or incarnates. Okay, let me pause, make sure we're all following this here, right? Um, one thing he's saying is that spirits, spiritual creatures can, uh, you know, spirits can interact with other spirits, right? That's normal. Remember how he said at the beginning of the Osanwe Kenta that um, one spirit is always aware of the presence of other spirits, right? Like you might kind of be dulled to it because of your body, right? You know, filtered through your body, it, uh, you know, it kind of, uh, it kind of deadens the signal a little bit, but, but your spirit is always like aware of the presence of other spirits. Um, all spirits are aware of the presence of other spirits. So, um, they can, all spirits can influence, right? They can make contact with or act upon other spirits and incarnate persons because incarnate persons have spirits too, right? But incarnate, uh, persons are amphibious creatures, right? They have spirits and they have bodies. They have their fear and they have their horror. Um, so generally the spirits, the like, spirits, spiritual creatures, uh, spiritual beings can primarily influence the fear of incarnates, right? But in the case of great spirits, the most powerful ones, they can act directly upon physical things even without a body. So one of the Valar can manifest a body for themselves, right? Fake body, right? It's not a real, but it's not really incarnate, but they can, they can make, it's, it's, it's a real body in the sense that it has real substance, right? They can eat and drink and, and all that kind of thing, right? Um, you know, they can eat, drink, give you a hug, punch you in the face, right? They can interact with things physically. Um, or I guess in the case of Tolkas, right? Like put you in a full Nelson and then, and then uh, 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 put you in chains afterwards. Um, but um, they can uh, sometimes, even without bodies, in work directly upon physical things. So this can happen. They can directly, in their spiritual forms, impact physical things. But this is unusual. Right, doesn't usually happen. Only the great spirits can do it, and it doesn't usually happen. To describe this, this whole interaction thing, they used, but by deliberate symbolism, taken, e.g., from such cases as their breathing upon a cold or frosted surface, which was then melted, the Thu, or Su. In addition to in addition, Manway, the most powerful spirit in Arda, in this respect was Lord of Air in Winds, and the winds were in primitive Eldarin thought to be especially his emission of power for himself. Hence Thule, blowing forth, was used, spirit in this in this special sense, the emission of power, of will or desire from a spirit. So the wind, the breath of Manway. Uh, is the wind, right? This is an example of it. He's the most powerful spirit in Arda. And in this respect was the Lord of air and winds. So metaphorically, symbolically, they compare this interaction between a spiritual thing and a physical thing. It's like when you can see the mist of your breath upon um, a cold or frosted surface, right? Your breath, you can see your breath interacting with it. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the interaction of the gaseous thing upon the solid thing is made visible 
right, in that way. So that's when he's talking about as a metaphor, uh, as a sort of symbol uh, for the um, uh, for the interaction between the spirit and the physical world. And that the primary example of this are the winds themselves. The winds were thought to be especially his emission of power for himself. So winds are the breath of Manwe directly, right? Now, you probably know what I'm, what this makes me think of, right? Um, uh, I have always maintained that, um, so if you ask me, do we see the Valar intervening in the story of the Lord of the Rings? Like in the War of the Ring, do the Valar intervene directly? There are a handful of incidents that I would read. It's usually not explicitly said, right? There are a handful of incidents that I would argue are the direct intervention of the Valar in the events of the War of the Ring, of the, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Um, one is when Frodo drops the E-bomb on the Witch King, right? I believe that Elbereth hears his prayer when he cries out for Elbereth. Um, the second is the wind change at the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? The change in the wind which breaks up the shadow, and of course, most importantly, uh, that bre- that breath from the sea uh, that blows uh, into the sails of the ships that brings Aragorn and the men of S- Southern Gondor to the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, I I think there is indirect evidence in the text of the Lord of the Rings itself to support this reading, um, but it's very indirect. I could never prove it. I mean, there's not enough to constitute proof, um, but I've always believed it. Um, and so I was particularly interested to read this passage for that reason, uh, uh, because uh, it made me feel a little smug. Um, because this would, again, he's not explicitly supporting that thesis here, but if we are in fact told uh, that, you know, wind you know, winds are understood to be uh, the breath of, 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 you know, of Manway pretty directly here. Um, I think that there's um, much reason to believe that that uh, pivotal, um, you know, crucial change in the wind, which is commented upon so many times, right, and brings hope to so many, um, uh, is uh, um, one of the most, no, the most dramatic and significant of the direct interventions of the Valar in the story of the Lord of the Rings. Um, anyway, okay, the Eldar still hold that winds may be, and now the handwriting starts starts to deteriorate, um, the Eldar still hold that winds may be such, and not all are naturally made, uh, uh, so that the air is easily disturbed by direct will, or alternatively, that the Something of such power may seem to incarnate like a wind. Uh, in other words, they hold this is still true, right? Um, not all winds are natural; just happen for no reason, or just happen as a pure cause of apparently arbitrary natural causes, right? Um, or wind, 
there are some winds themselves, which not only are the result of the power of of uh, of, of, of of Manwe, but also his exertion of power might seem to incarnate like a wind. Again, it's is it one or the other? Is it wind? Is it breath? Is it spirit? Yes. It's all of those things. And of course, if you've... Um, if I'm recalling correctly, this is the very example that Owen Barfield uses when he's talking about these primal concepts in words that get separated out as, in, as languages develop, right? Um, but in so many languages, there's <clears throat> a single word that means all of those things, right? Spirit, wind, and breath. And that the evidence is that the earlier cultures did not really distinguish um, those two things, those three things. Like that, it's not that it's not just that they had one word which was used for three totally different things. It's that these things which seem to us like separate things because we have different words for them, right? We have the word breath and the word wind and the word spirit, but when you're talking about a culture that has one word for all three of those things, like, for instance, Hebrew, right? The word ruach means all of those things in Hebrew. Um, in Greek, it's very similar. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of... Uh, we can, you can see a lot of this kind of thing. Um, and he's suggesting, like, the truth is, yeah... It's kind of wind, spirit, breath. Yeah, they kind of are actually <laughs> the same thing uh, in a way. Um, anyway, I found that very interesting. Um, it is a very common semantic extension, Bjornas Honor. Exactly. It, it really is. It really is. And does anybody remember? Am I right in saying that was... I My memory... I haven't read it in forever. Uh, but um, the Owen Barfield's the example that Barfield uses. Um, yeah. Okay. Alyssa, thank you. I thought, I thought that that was, um, which is another thing that made it particularly conspicuous, uh, uh, to, to me there. Um, beyond the Yes. On very different grounds in some way. Like, he's talking, I mean, not talking about, um, you know, primitive elder in thought. Um, but I think there's a definitely a relation there, um, or rather that we see Tolkien embodying the same kind of idea within Elvish, the Elvish languages themselves. Um, okay, anyway, all right. Um, more stuff on the, uh, the rules of engagement here for the Ainur, going back to some of the stuff we were looking at before. This direct action upon things was held to be quite different from direct calling of attention from other spirits. All right, so like if you're going to act as a spirit, if you're going to change stuff, if you're going to affect the physical world directly, it's a different game than just interacting with another spirit, right? You can call out, you can communicate with another spirit, right? That's free. It's free action, right? Um, but um, direct action upon things, different situation. The latter, the latter, that is the call of calling of attention from other spirits. The latter was a natural operation within one mode of being. 
it being the nature of spirits to be aware of one another. That's just, that's like what they're for, right? The former, that is the direct action upon things, was an exhalation of dominance of one mode over another. I mean, it's, it's what it is. You're, Manway was forcing all that air to move, right? He was forcing all that air to move. He was making stuff happen directly. There's dominance involved, right? Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad or wrong, right? I mean, the wind from the sea did eventually assert its dominance over the pall of shadow that Sauron had, uh, and that was welcome, right? And yet, he made stuff happen by blowing that wind. Again, my interpretation. Can't prove it. The former was an exhalation of... So the direct action upon things was an exhalation of dominance of one mode over another. And according to the Eldar, all exertions of dominance make demands upon those who exert the power. Something of their spirit is expelled and transferred to the thing in a lower mode. Love this. You following that? What happens when you make something happen. When a spirit exerts dominance over physical matter, it takes something out of you. It takes something out of you. You have to expel something of your spirit in order to make that because there's a transfer. It's like a transfer of energy, right? In order for the spirit thing to interact with the lower mode, the lower mode in this case is physical being, right, physical matter, in order for the spiritual thing to transfer, some, to make something happen with that lower mode, they've got to, it, it costs something. That's not the natural expression. It's not the natural operation of their mode of being. One spirit communicating with another, that's how things normally work. But if you're going to cross the, the border between spirit and the physical, if you're going to make something happen, it's going to cost you. Right? There's, um, um, that's not a neutral exchange. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, and you can see what he's setting up, right? This is the sort of philosophical underpinning of what we see from Melkor, right? And Sauron. Hence, all tyrants slowly consume themselves or transfer their power to things and can only control it so long as they can possess or control the thing. Um, but power is dissipated. Again, there's a handwriting issue there in the middle. But power is dissipated. When Melkor emits his spirit, right? When he expels his spirit in order to dominate stuff, creatures, for sure, right? The orcs, the dragons, right? All the stuff that he makes and does, but, but other things as well, right? Um, he controls the weather. He controls, I remember the, you know, uh, his, that this is a thing that he does. Uh, um, he can do all kinds of things. He's trying to control everything and expelling his own spirit in order to do it. Um, 
why do tyrants slowly consume themselves? Why, you know, as I've said, you know, um, in her uttermost famine, um, Ungoliant at last devouring herself is the purest paradigm of evil in Tolkien's world, right? Um, it's the, like, uh, laboratory example, right? The laboratory illustration of what evil does and how it operates. And we can see it in Melkor and we can see it in Sauron. Um, they're constantly transferring their power to things, things of one sort or another. And they can only control it so long as they're continuing to dissipate their power to maintain that control. So Morgoth had become, in fact, less powerful than the other Valar, and much of his native power had passed into things, maybe diminished. Hence, his malice could live on after his extrusion. So once he's banished, that's why there's still evil in the world after Morgoth is banished. Um, that is some of Morgoth's evil. The marring, right, is not cured by kicking out Morgoth because so much of his spirit has been infused into the substance of Arda through his attempts to dominate it. And remember, that is what the children are supposed to heal. The marring of Arda. Through, this is the process by which it's marred. Hmm. The words used to describe this action or emission of power were derived apparently by analogy from emission of breath and such physical phenomena as breathing upon frost which melts. In addition, Manwe, who was held to be lord of air and winds, was the most powerful of the Valar in this respect, and the most powerful spirit in Arda. Um, <clears throat> but remember, it's going to cost him something, too. Um, this provides a, ver <clears throat> a very powerful, but very difficult to explain, answer to a very common question. I was talking about the handful of examples that I think, you know, that there is a, there are a handful of examples I think where we can see the Valar acting in the in the action in the uh, events of the Lord of the Rings. I've been asked before, why don't the Valar do more? Why do they, you know, let things go so far downhill? Why don't they take a more direct action? They can't. This is the answer to that question. Now, this would be a difficult answer to give and explain over Twitter, admittedly. Um, but they, they, they can't. They shouldn't. Um, if they did, they too would become lessened. It would be a, they would be, in a sense, going down the Morgoth road. They're not supposed to exert dominance over people and events. Remember, back to the my Garden of Eden parallel, right back to the, um, uh, stuff they're not supposed to do, right? The opportunity that they have, they could, they could try to assert themselves. They could try to support with latent power their commands. Um, but it's forbidden for them to do that. Um, Yeah. Um, 
Bjarne Sunder says the word extrusion gives me the mental image of Morgoth as a goopy mass getting squeezed. Exactly, yeah. Extruded. Uh, extruded like pus out of a boil. Right. Uh, so when when Melkor when Melkor is is kicked out into outer darkness, it was like it was they finally lanced the boil of Middle Earth and squeezed the pus out into outer darkness. That's uh, that's exactly I think um, the fittest metaphor uh, for uh, the banishment of uh, uh, Morgoth, and I have to admit, uh, not one I'd ever had in my mind before. Um, and I'm trying to decide whether my life is the richer for that. Uh, now I'm not sure that it is, but at the same time, I don't think it's a wholly inappropriate metaphor either. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) anyway, um, um, yeah. Uh, now, great, Brian, that's an excellent question, and I was wondering this too. How is this different from all the work that Valar did to shape Arda in the beginning? What turns it into domination? Um, I don't know. I don't know. So on the one hand, yes, they do have the power to shape stuff. Like, making the mountain ranges is not, you know, crossing that line, right? Not crossing that boundary. Now, clearly acting in such ways as to sway events that are that consist of the free choices of the children of Eru, right? Um, Is definitely crossing that line. Right? Intervening. um, You know, miraculously, obviously miraculously or otherwise, right? Um, That's definitely there. But, But yeah, I can see, I can imagine, um, uh, I can imagine, I, I can see the difference from the Valar point of view, right? Between trying to do something to influence the events and choices of, you know, the incarnates, um, versus just shaping the world like they're supposed to, right? As sub-creators. Um, uh, I mean, Manwe would be not telling the truth, right? If he were like, yeah, it was just um, part of my sub-creative plan to have a, you know, wind blow up in that direction that day. I had nothing to do with the battle. It's a fun coincidence, right? <laughs> the impact that it had on the Battle of Poe Field. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> just just not true, right? Um, so, like, from the... From their point of view, like from the point of view of their motivations, I can see a difference. But Brian, what I don't see is with the philosophical point, right? If it is the nature, if if it is part of the nature of spirit and and matter, that for the one to act upon, for the higher to act upon the lower, um, that is spirit to act upon matter, it has to exert this power. It has to expel itself. If this is just like a natural law, right? If this is an utan, right? Um, that that's just how it works, then I don't understand how their, I mean, their sub-creative, their sub-creative acts might be lawful, right? Might be, like, totally cool for them to do, um, um, but I don't see how it, you know, I can see how it would be in compliance with the Aksani, right, with the laws, um, but I don't see how it of what I'm understanding is that he's describing a newton, like the way things work, right? The way, uh, the way things operate. Um, so I just, that I don't 
see. I don't. I don't understand. Um, maybe okay. Stephen says the text says tyrants transfer power and can only control it. That is, control the matter as long as that power is transferred. The Valar are not trying to maintain control, so maybe they use power but not transfer it. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's the but. I don't know. I mean. Um, transferred to the thing in a lower mode, right? Hence, something of their spirit is expelled and transferred to the thing in a lower mode. I can't help but, I mean, I can't help but I'm thinking of Newton's laws here, right? Um, you know, like in, over to come, in, over, in, in order to overcome the inertia of a solid body, they've got to exert energy. It takes energy, right? It takes something out of them. And once they've done it, 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 transfers, it transfers that energy to the object, right? Um, so if there were a boulder which they wanted to start rolling or, say, a ship they wanted to start pushing up a river, um, they, um, it takes energy, right? It, they have to expel power, something of their spirit, in order to make that happen. Now, Stephen, I think that it would, if you wanted to carry on doing it, right? Um, I mean, if it was your job if it was your, not your job, if it were your intention uh, to control the movement of these ships for, you know, like permanently, um, then you'd have to carry on doing it. It would be a continuous drain. But I don't see how it makes it not a drain at all just to start them moving in the first place, right? Um, I can see how it's lesser, but I can't see how it's not at all one. Um, uh So yeah, I I don't think I see the answer that, to that question. Unless we're to understand, maybe, maybe he's implying that that does happen. That the Valar do expel some of themselves. Maybe they do put a little bit of themselves into everything that they make. <clears throat> and so, Stephen, I then come back to your... Um, I come back to your point then. It's not that it requires no energy, no um, uh, uh, expenditure, right, of spirit on their part to do the subcreative acts. But it's a, it's a, it's a lesser and therefore, like ordinate. So that they are lessened actually seems clear. We know the Valar at the end, when we're coming to the end of Arda, are going to be lesser. They age the Valar. Right? Um, and that, but if that's an expression of their love, if they, in pursuing their course, are like is it possible that you put yourself into the things that you make, but in a, like a good way? It still costs something. That would make it still an act of sacrifice. That all act of subcreation in that case, Stephen, if, if, if I'm right about this, every act of subcreation would be an act of sacrifice. Right? You'd be giving of yourself, literally giving of yourself in order to make that happen. But, and they were designed, they, the Valar, I mean, are designed, they, why do they have so much in the first place? Why are they so great? Well, so that they have enough to do their job, right? Um, 
to do the subcreative work that they're meant to do. Um, and if they do it ordinately, if they do it according to the Aksani, then it will hold out, right? Um, they're not going to become a weakened shell of themselves, uh, a weakened nihilistic shell of you know himself like, like Morgoth did, right? Um, I... I think I can see that, and Brian, it would explain why they seem to do less and less in the physical world as the ages pass. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I don't see any loophole um, in that sentence about the exhalation of dominance of one mode over another. I mean, it is. It's, it is an act. Shaping a mountain range is an act of dominance, right? You're taking that matter and you're making it, you know, uh, uh, you know, sit and stay in that place, right? That's exertion of dominance. And therefore, that's not part of the natural operation of spirit. So that seems to me inescapable, the way that he's framed that. Um, yeah, but it does really, I mean, doesn't this offer a quite radical new way of looking at that question. Why do the Valar do more? Right? Why are they so lazy, those Valar? They're wise. And it's not selfish of them, right? Oh, no, I gotta, I gotta conserve my, myself, right? Um, but if they were to submit to that, their love, their expression of love has to be kept within the bounds of the Axani. The Axani are there for a reason, right? The laws are there for a reason. Um, and if they stay within those bounds, then they will fulfill their purpose, right? Everything will be, they will be happy and healthy and everything will work out. But if they exceed it, like tyrants, right? They will slowly consume themselves. So if they cross the line... It's not, even if they cross the line with a pot, with a good intent, as we see them cross the line when they invite the elves uh, to Valinor, right? It's a different axon, right? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Cecilia, I was thinking, of course, of that line too. Haldir's uh, thought uh, the line about we put the thought of all we love into all that we make. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been dancing around that quotation in my head for the last few minutes as we've been talking about this passage. Um, is it like that? Um, is that true even of the Valar? Or, sorry, even of the Eldar in some sense? Um, why is it that Feanor can't make the Silmarils again? Why is it that Yavanna can't make the trees again, right? Um, they're tapped. They can only do that once. Um, they don't have enough. They don't have enough. Um, their greatest works took too much out of them. And there's not enough left for them to do it again and remain them. Um... Interesting. Okay. 
more about the Valar. And then I think... Yes. I'm not going to get too far into um, the uh, incarnation stuff, but... Or, sorry, the reincarnation stuff. But here's our last one prior to that. The Valar had a command, great individually, almost complete as a united council, over the physical material of Ea, the material universe. Their Fanar, that is, remember the Fanar are those, um, the shapes that they can manifest themselves in, right? The bodies they can put on like clothing. Their Fanar, which were originally devised out of love for the children of Eru, the incarnate, whom they were to guard and counsel, had the properties of the material of which the Kaur, or bodies, of the elves and also of men, were formed. They were not transparent. They cast shadows, as if their inner luminosity was dimmed. They could move material objects and were resisted by these and resisted them. So, Fanar were material bodies, right? They were material bodies. They acted in all ways like material bodies. They, were, they had the properties of the material of which the elves and men were formed, right? Notice that I love the list of things that is true of the bodies. So when the bodies, when the Valar manifest themselves in physical form, you can't see through them. They cast shadows. Uh, they can move stuff around, right? If they push an object, it goes. They were resisted by these. So if they trip over something, they'll fall, right? And they resisted them. So if you, like, shoot a spitball at one of the Valar, it'll bounce off them, right? These things are all true of the bodies of the Valar. They're not different bodies in these ways, in these physical ways. These Fanar, however, also were, sorry, these Fanar were, however, also personal expressions in terms suitable to the apprehension of the incarnate of their individual natures and functions, and you were usually also clad in vestures of similar purpose. Um, okay, so they... Um, uh, they are expressions. They're not... Um, they, choo they choose, right? The Valar themselves choose. So the spirits, right? The, the spirits of the Valar make the deliberate choice how to manifest themselves in a body, right? They, they, it's a personal expression. Um, also, clothing, right? Um, which, by the way, I believe means that that's also part of their expression. Um, if you see one of the Valar dressed in clothing, the clothing is part of them, right? Like, Valar doesn't manifest themselves naked, and they keep a wardrobe of giant-sized clothing, right? Or so clothing in various sizes, right? Okay, I'm going to manifest the 14-foot-tall body today, so I need to open the 14-foot-tall uh, wardrobe, right, of clothes uh, to dress myself in. But I keep sets, right, in the the 14-foot size and the 9-foot size and the 35-foot size for, like, real special occasions. Um, no, that's not how they do it, right? If they appear to be wearing clothes, those clothes are an expression of themselves, right? It's part of their own body. Um, yeah, okay. Um,
All right, let me finish reading and then I'll, I'll say what I was going to say. But it is often mentioned in the legends that certain of the Valar and occasionally of the Maiar passed over the sea and appeared in Middle-earth, notably Orome, Ulmo, and Yavanna. The Valar and Maiar were essentially spirits, according to Elvish tradition, being given... Sorry, according to Elvish tradition, given being before the making of Ea. They could go where they willed, that is, could be present at once at any point in Ea where they desired to be. So, you know, when Orome passes over the sea, he doesn't need a boat, is what we're saying here, right? Um, you don't have to imagine, you know, Orome and Nahar, like, punting across the ocean in order to get to... Um, in order to get to Middle-earth, right? They're spirits. They're essentially spirits. They could go where they willed. They could be pre be present at once at any point in Ea where they desired to be. Valar can totally teleport. Not a problem. Not a problem. Um, it takes Orome some time to get... He's got to cross the sea and get back across the sea when he's bringing elves with him, right? If he's got ambassadors in tow, now he can't just teleport. Right. Um, but uh, usually they can. Now, let me come back to the other point that I was making, the way that it connected to the previous contemplations we were doing, specifically about the interaction between body and spirit. So here's my question. You're a spirit, right? And you want to affect the world, right? Um, but it costs something, as we were discussing, right? If you're a spirit and you're going to try to act upon... Uh, you're going to exert some kind of dominance, even benevolent and appropriate dominance, over matter, it's going to cost you something. This would seem like a loophole, right? Well, no problem. Manifest your fonar, right? Now you're, now you're physical substance, right? So look at all this. They can, they can move material objects and, and, and be resisted by material, right? They can, they can pick stuff up. They can bump into things, right? They can bounce off things. No problem. So is that a, is that a loophole? Is that a loophole? Can you uh, manifest your fonar um, and therefore interact, thereby, I should say, interact with um, with the physical world um, without any without any difficulty, right? Um, I don't think so. In fact, we know so. Remember what we read before, earlier on, right? About how manifesting your fauna, your fauna is is addictive, right? Remember, it's uh, it's habit forming, and if the more you use your fauna to interact with the physical world the more tied to it you're going to become. Like Melian, right? Um, so, it does cost them something. It's not the same. It's not the same thing, but it still costs them something. Um, it's still... It still lessens them. It makes them subject. It binds them to matter. Which is, again, not exactly the same thing as expelling your spirit in order to exert dominance over matter. But I think it's not wholly unconnected either. Um, I think that both of them are costly in that way. Um, 
exactly autoflagellator interact with matter. Uh, it is true that um, getting married, conceiving, and bearing a daughter is a uh, uh, an intense way to interact with matter. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's um, set the stage for our reincarnation discussion. Um, in this passage, in this chapter, chapter 15, we got one of those things that I always wanted. Um, I have all kinds of not just respect, but even sort of sympathy for Christopher Tolkien. Um, I can't imagine how ungrateful I would sound if Christopher Tolkien could hear me talking about how much I wish he didn't cut out as much from the history of Middle-earth, right? Like, you know, those passages where he um, tells us about a text that exists, but doesn't give it to us. Either he just summarizes it or gives us a, a bit, and he's like, it goes on for a while, but, you know, here's the gist. There are a couple places where he does that, right? And, look, I, again, I have sympathy for Christopher. I, I'm sure that when he was putting together the history of Middle-earth, he was like, how can I even justify making it this long, right? If I don't cut some stuff out... This is like, it's, it's going to be ridiculous, right? Um, surely he was thinking that no one would ever wish the history of Middle Earth longer, right? But here we are, <laughs> right? Here I am anyway, constantly wishing the history of Middle Earth longer. Um, and um, here in this chapter of the nature of Middle Earth, one of my dreams comes true, right? We get to a text which Christopher Tolkien gives in... Morgoth's ring. But he only gives about a page, page and a half of it. And then he's like, after this, there's a set of notes which goes on for a while. But anyway, I'll kind of tell you what he was talking about, right? Um, and we get it, right? Carl uh, uh, Hostetter has given it to us. It's so, I, it's delightful. Now, I'm not saying I can't see why Christopher cut it, because I, I see it. I totally, I, I totally see it. But I'm glad to read it, right? So um, the first bits that we're reading, and probably the only part of it we're going to have time to talk about this week, um, is from the bit that was there in Morgoth's Ring. But I included this so as to, uh, um, so as to set up what's going to come later. Uh, Manwe spoke to Eru, saying, Behold, an evil appears in Arda that we did not look for. Thy firstborn children, whom thou madest immortal, suffer now severance of spirit and body. It's the death crisis, right? We, we, it's, I mean, Muriel has died, and, 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 oh man, like, talk about headaches, right? Um, and here's poor Manway not knowing what to do, so he's consulting. It's, a, it's an Eru consult on the death question. Many of the fair of the elves in Middle-earth are now houseless. And even in Amman there is one, Muriel. The houseless we summon to Amman to keep them from the darkness, and all who hear our voice abide here in waiting. What further is to be done? Is there no means by which their lives may be renewed to follow the courses which thou hast designed? 
And what of the bereaved who mourn those that have gone? So you see the problem, right? You see the problem. Look, plainly, Manway's like, it's obvious. You designed elves to, you know, they're supposed to be around and to be in Arda for the rest of Arda, right? Um, And yet they're dying. Like, not, you know, of old age or anything, but, like, they get killed sometimes. The spirit is severed from the body. It just happens. Sometimes weirdly, like with Muriel, but whatever. Anyway, like, you know, accidents occur. But now, and, and, and now we have this obviously undesirable situation where the houseless spirit, which is not okay, it's not okay for it to be houseless. It's not safe on its own. You design them to be body and spirit joined together, and now here they are, deprived of their bodies, wandering around. We're taking them in. You know, we have a, a shelter for houseless spirits over here in Amman, but... Um, but they just have to wait? They just have to stay in the shelter for the rest of Arda? What about the stuff that they might have done if they hadn't fallen off the cliff? You know? Or whatever. Um, this seems an unsatisfactory situation to Manway, right? Eru answered, Let the houseless be rehoused. Manway asked, How shall this be done? Eru answered, let the body that was destroyed be remade, or let the naked Fea be reborn as a child. All right. Two options, right? Two options. Um, uh, the body that was destroyed can be remade, right? Let's, let's, uh, let's rebuild the house. They're houseless. Let's, uh, let's start a housing project. Or... Let the naked Fea be reborn as a child. So we can either we can either remake the house or we can recycle the spirit. One or the other. These are the two choices. Okay. Then Manwe asked further, O Iluvatar, hast thou not spoken also of rebirth? So they talk about the remaking for a while, right? How does that could can you explain how that works, please? But then Manwe asks for further clarification. Um Hast thou not spoken also of rebirth? Is that too within our power and authority? Because you can see why Menway's a little nervous here, right? He's like, isn't birth totally above my pay grade, right? I mean, the children of Eru are called that for a reason, right? The sending of the spirits of the, you know, the, 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 the Fear of the children of Iluvatar are formed by Iluvatar directly, right? Um, and he sends them into the world when new incarnates are born, right? And so Manway's like, we don't have access. How can we put somebody on that particular assembly line when we don't have access to that factory, right? How can we, how can we, I mean, is that within our power and authority? But he, he's not certain about either one, right? Um, sh- we should do that. And can we do that? Eru answered, It shall be within your authority, but it is not in your power. Those whom ye judge fit to be reborn, if they desire it and understand clearly what they incur, ye shall surrender to me, and I will consider them. 
Okay. So, yes, it shall be in your authority, but not in your power. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, you should do it, but you can't. What does he give to them? He gives them the authority to make the call. When you deem that a soul, a fea, right, a spirit is prepared for rebirth, and notice what he what he Eru insists on here. Notice that there are three conditions that are prerequisites for rebirth. You see that? Condition number one. Ye, the Valar, ye plural, right? The Valar must judge them fit to be reborn. So first you need the assessment of the physician, right? Are they, are they ready? Are they ready to go back into, into circulation? That's first. Second, if they desire it and understand clearly what they incur, they have to make an informed decision themselves. So the Valar have to judge and the spirits themselves have to be totally down with it and understand what's involved, right? A, a completely informed, completely informed consent is required. And then the third thing, the third thing, Eru's approval, right? He doesn't say, ye shall surrender them, uh, you know, those ye shall surrender to me and I'll make it happen. That's not what he says. And I will consider them. Um, Eru seems to me to be reserving unto himself veto power here, right? Do, do you see what I, I mean? Do you think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm right about that, right? I will consider them. He doesn't make any promises. Um, they can't do it. They can't make it happen. The birth process is out of their control. Eru's in charge of sending Fear, right? Whether he's going to add one of these rebirth Fear to his queue or not is his call. But he won't do it unless those other two conditions have been met, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so that's what's involved in reincarnation. Before we get there, though, we have a lot to talk about concerning matter. Well, hang on. One more before we get there. Maybe I can do this. Hey, look at that. I still have time. The Valar were troubled, not only because of the case of Finway and Muriel, but because of the Avari and of the Sindar. For Middle-earth was perilous to bodies, and many had died even before the Eldar came to Amon. And they discovered that, though those Thayar that obeyed their summons were safe from the darkness, to be naked was against their nature. Therefore, the dead were unhappy, not only because they were bereaved of friends, but because they could do no deed, nor achieve any new design without the body. Many therefore turned inwards, brooding upon their injuries, and they were hard to heal. Their injuries were hard to heal. So, okay... I don't know what to do with this. But doesn't there seem to be an obvious parallel involved here? Um, 
what is the situation with dead elves? Why are the dead unhappy? Sorry. Why are the dead unhappy? Because they could do no deed, no deed, nor achieve any new design without their bodies. They're unhappy because they're completely incapable. So long as they are out of the body, they are completely incapable of fulfilling their purpose. They can't do anything. They were designed to do stuff. And they can't do anything when they're dead. Because they they were, you know, designed to be Thea and Roa joined together. Do you see the parallel I'm making? Elves brought to Amon by the Valar when they issued their invitation, right? The elves who physically travel to Valar, and to Valinor, rather, and live there, right? To Amon and live there with the Valar. They also are thwarted of their purpose, right? They're thwarted of their purpose. They also are, in a sense, unhappy. They're blissful. They're in bliss. And yet, in a sense, also, they're unhappy, as you can see from the revolt of the Noldor, which is totally the fault of the Valar. Well, not totally, right? But it's one of the disastrous consequences. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I mean? And notice how the parallel situation is emphasized. Both the Calaquendi at the beginning, and the spirits of the dead elves all the way through are brought by the Valar to live in Amon. It's like the unhoused spirits of the dead elves are like a metaphor, or not a metaphor even, um, a parallel, right? It's like an illustration of there's a direct analogy here, is what I'm saying. Um, and what I can't get over is the fact that now the Valar have put themselves permanently in the business of importing elves. Useless elves. In a sense. Right? Um unhappy elves. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this. I don't think it's wrong. It was clearly the wrong choice for the Valar to bring the elves to Valinor in the first place. That was clearly, explicitly wrong. Thwarting the purpose of the elves. I don't think bringing the dead elves, the unhoused spirit of the elves, to Mandos is similarly wrong, inappropriate, unwise. I don't think so. But the parallel because there are many and close parallels. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. The two of them, I can't think of the two of them in separation from, in like an isolation from each other. The 
these two invitations. Um, and remember, by the way, that the invitation issued to the spirits of dead elves is also optional, right? It's, it's not compulsory. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to do with the parallel. Uh, there feels like, almost like an irony in the two things, right? Um, as if... Almost as if the necessity of bringing the unhappy... Um, frustrated, thwarted spirits of elves over to Amon was like designed to teach the Valar a lesson. Like, almost like Iluvatar saying, look at these two things. You, you, see, you see the similarity here, right? I'm trying to tell you something about bringing elves over. Um, you're you were trying to protect them. You thought they might die. And so you tried to protect them. But what you did, it was like you killed them all. In fact. Right? Not the same. It's not exactly the same. But there's a, a kind of parallel there. Um, you might as well have left them to die. Did you make their situation better? But I don't think that um, Iluvatar is just doing this kind of thing to like, um, uh, just doing this kind of thing to like beat on the Valar, right? Um, I don't think this is just Iluvatar beating the dead horse, right? And being like, I'm going to tell you again how dumb that idea was. Um, so I can't think that that's the only purpose here, but, um, Yeah, I don't think I have the answer. Maybe someday I'll figure it out. Of those two parallel things. But it's it's very close. I feel like um, I feel like Fiverr when he is describing trying to bite bark that's protected by wire. That's exactly how I feel. I totally am with Fiverr on that. Anyway, all right, but I'm not going to figure it out tonight. Uh, next week, we will start with um, the Aksami of the Valar, and we will move on to looking at the really deep philosophy uh, that we're going to get into when talking about matter, living things, um, all in the interest of explaining about how new bodies can be made. Right? Remember, there were the two methods of uh, putting the elves back into circulation. One was to rehouse them, and the other was to reincarnate them. Um, and we're going to focus a lot next time on the philosophical implications of the rehousing. How does that housing project work? What's involved in that? And what does that tell us about how the world and matter works? Um, some really deep and fascinating stuff there. So we'll get into that next time. 
Um, hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks for uh, uh, joining us. Uh, fun to see folks who are uh, um, uh, joining us for the first time live. All right. See you guys next week. Um, that is true. That is totally true. See you guys next week uh, when we will dig more into this. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through Chapter 15. There's a lot of stuff here, but we will do the best we can. Thank you very much, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.